We have a serious topic to look at this morning in Romans. It's always a serious topic when it comes to proclaiming Scripture. However, this is not a lighthearted sermon. This is not a sermon where you feel good about yourself. Today's sermon should strike at your heart. It should make you wonder if you're doing what the text says here. The title of the sermon matches the text, Putting Sin to Death by the Spirit. We're talking about sin. We're going to mention the word sin. There's going to be talk about death, and that's putting sin to death by the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, 12 and 13, a very famous text. If you've read many of the Puritans, they really pick up this idea of putting sin to death. There was even a book I'll mention later written just on this one verse. Romans 8, 12 and 13, I'm going to start in verse 1 just to see the context leading into this passage. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. However, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive, or literally the Spirit is life, because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, Through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. What we're looking at in this text today is a doctrine called sanctification. Sanctification. It's the continuing work of God in a believer... The believer is made more holy, more Christ-like throughout his Christian life. We're not talking about justification. Of course, justification comes first. That's why it's been Romans 3 through 7 talking about justification. Now he's looking at this idea of sanctification. And he did touch on it in chapter 6. He did. But now he's saying that you have the Spirit. The Spirit is sanctifying you and you play a role. You didn't play a role in justification. That was Christ on the cross. Our role is simply to have faith when we hear the gospel, to believe. But in sanctification, we have God in us. We're in him. He's in us. And he's working through us to bring about a more holy Christian, a more holy believer from the time we're justified, the time we have faith, all the way until we die. And so this is called sanctification or more specifically progressive sanctification. Progressive meaning you get more and more holy as you grow as a Christian. There are two parts to sanctification. 
theologians, especially the Puritans, talked about two different aspects. One is mortification and one is vivification. Mortification, from the word to mortify, means to kill, to kill something. And in this case, to put off the old man with its evil practices, to put off sin. Or as Paul says here, putting the practices of the body to death. This is our topic today. The other part of sanctification is vivification. Vivification is the opposite of mortification. Vivification is to make alive, to vivify. It's the renewing of the whole person in Christ to the image of God. Putting on Christ to live a holy life. Often in biblical counseling, you'll hear this idea of putting off and putting on. You put off the sinful tendencies that you have, the sinful temptations, the sinful actions, and you put on Christ. But pastor, we're already in Christ. Yes, I know that. Paul knows that if you're a believer. The point is, we tend to want to go back into sin, and the idea is to get rid of that and keep putting on Christ. It's a continual action. We're in Christ, but we tend to drift. We're prone to wonder, like the one song says. We feel it. We know we're, we're wandering back into sin. And Paul is telling us there's something we should be doing to help with this. So we're not looking at vivification today. We're looking at mortification. And that's what he wants us to focus on in this passage. The idea of killing sin. Because this is the right place to put it. He's talked about the Spirit indwelling us. He's talked about the Spirit in us. And what a great time for him to mention the Spirit working in us to kill sin in our life. Remember in this previous message that I gave, 9 through 11, verses 9 through 11, the Spirit does indwell every believer. Every person who's justified through faith alone in Christ alone has the Holy Spirit. God didn't forget some Christians. He didn't leave out a few. He didn't miss a few. The moment a person is truly saved, that moment they have the Holy Spirit, He's a permanent residence inside of every believer. So he doesn't come and go. He's not gone from you the moment you sin. He's with you. And that ought to prompt us not to sin, by the way. Christ is with us. And when we sin, we're bringing Christ and the Holy Spirit along. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. So the Holy Spirit in you is proof that you belong to Christ. He brings life to sinners when he converts them to Christ, the Spirit does. And he will raise every believer up on resurrection day. That's what Paul spoke of in verses 9 through 11. Now, in these two verses, he brings out the first implication. Okay, we have the Spirit. What does that mean for our life? What does that mean for the Christian life? When I get up in the morning, I know I have the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? What that means is he's there to give us power. He's there to give us power, not to work miracles and wonders, but to live a holy life. That's God's will for our life, to live a holy life. What exactly does it mean for our life as believers now that we have the Holy Spirit? Well, that's the point of this passage here today. By the Spirit's power dwelling in us, we must constantly, every day, be putting off the sins that we struggle with. We now have the Holy Spirit. And if we put to death those sins... That shows we're on the path to eternal life. The first thing I want you to see, the first main point here is in verse 12. And Paul, as he often does, I think either gets excited here or it's so obvious the end of the sentence that he doesn't even finish it. But first of all, let's look at we're no longer debtors to the flesh, but to the spirit. We're no longer debtors to the flesh, but to the spirit. So then, so based on what he just said about the spirit dwelling in each one of you, believer, brothers, 
He begins by addressing them as Christians. That's important. He's not proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers here. He's talking to Christians in the church. And he's, he's making a division here. He's saying that there's some who live according to the flesh. And they're really not Christians. That's the obvious logical conclusions. And there are some who live according to the Spirit. And he says, so then, based on the Spirit indwelling you, we have an obligation. This means a debt. In the monetary sense, it means you owe somebody money. That gets used figuratively often like it does here to owe an obligation in a moral sense. You're under obligation. You're under obligation. Paul mentions this. If you go back to Romans 1.14, he uses the same word. Same word, I'm under obligation. Both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. He's under obligation to preach the gospel. God has appointed him an apostle to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and the Jews. And that's his debt. That's his obligation. And Paul says, we're not under obligation to the flesh. You see that in verse 12. Not to the flesh. We are under an obligation. But to be clear, he says, it's not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If we had an obligation to the flesh, then we would go and live out the fleshly desires. The desires and passions and lusts that we have. And he said, there's no obligation to the flesh. We're different now. We're Christians. We're in Christ. The Spirit is in us. The Christian has no obligation to sin. We only have an obligation. That's what's implied here. Only have an obligation to live a holy life in the Spirit's power. You don't owe anything to sin. You do owe something to God. And not that you can pay him back for what he did for you. But because he saved you. Because he's redeemed you. And you're his now. You ought to live like that. Because the Spirit's in you. You ought to live like that. Not in the flesh. To be in the flesh means all that is against God. It's the idea that the whole world is against God. A life of being bound by sin. The idea that represents all those desires and passions that you once had as an unbeliever. If you were converted later in life, as a kid, it's harder to see this contrast. If you're converted young, but the older you get and you get saved, the more you understand the difference between living in the flesh and living according to the Spirit. We don't owe anything to the flesh. It's only cursed us. It's held us in bondage. What do you owe to your old master who's cursed you? It's made us unable to submit to God, Paul said. Unable to please God. It's been death to us. It's been death to us. We owe the flesh nothing. But we owe the Spirit everything. Everything. He's redeemed us. Christ has. The Spirit has indwelled us, regenerated us, brought us to this place where we can live a Christian life for the Lord, a holy life, a pious life in the good sense of the word pious. So we ought not to spend our lives paying anything to the flesh. A Christian should not spend their life living out their sinful desires. In fact, that's not a Christian at all. If you're living according to the flesh, there's a contrast. Notice, if you're living according to the flesh, that is opposite than living according to the Spirit. Galatians 6, 8. Paul's writing there to the churches and he says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Corruption, death, eternal death. If you sow seeds, he's saying to the Galatians, and this applies to all Christians. If you sow seeds to your own flesh, if you feed and water and fertilize the seeds of the flesh, guess what kind of crop you're going to get? What's that going to grow up to be? A sinful lifestyle. You're going to just have sin all over your life. And he says, you know what the eventual fruit will be of that? 
corruption. You're going to die eternally. Meaning you're not a Christian if you do that. Why is he telling us that? Because he's writing to the whole church. And sometimes people come in and they're self-deceived. Many people in our nation today are self-deceived. Thinking that they're saved. And he says, here's one of the ways you tell. Look at what kind of seed that you're sowing here. But the one who sows to the Spirit. The one who lives a life of godliness, of holiness. Who strives, even though yes, they still sin sometimes. They're struggling against it. They're fighting against it. They're making war on it. That person will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. So if we sow to the flesh, we get what we deserve, which is corruption. But if we sow to the Spirit, we will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. That's how he starts out these two verses here. He doesn't finish. You notice in most translations, there's this long line here. That always clues you in in the Bible to leaving that subject and slightly moving to a different one. He doesn't finish his idea because we are to understand that based on the context here. We are under obligation to the Spirit, not to the flesh. Secondly, I want you to see here. Secondly, living according to the flesh leads to eternal death. Where does this go if we just follow out our desires? If we claim to be a Christian and just follow out the old sinful desires we once had. Where does that lead? He says, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. You must die. Notice he changes. If you're making an observation here in the text, notice he changes from the we of the previous verse, first person plural, to the second person, and it's plural in the Greek. You all. If you all, if y'all are living according to the flesh, you must die. He does that to be more personal. He does that to be more personal. He knows he's not living according to the flesh. He wants to preach it to these Romans. And he's saying, if you're living like that, if you're living a sinful life, you must die. You professing Christian, you must not live according to the flesh. That's the idea. If you flip it around, it's an encouragement for the true believer. Don't do this. It's a warning. It's a strong warning. What does it mean to live according to the flesh? It means to live a habitual life of continual sin. Not that you're sinning every moment, but that you're continuing to sin and doing nothing about it. That you're continuing to sin and just hiding it and not addressing it. That you're keeping it around as a house pet. That you have more house pets than you should have at this point in your Christian walk. You're feeding it. You're loving it. You enjoy it. It brings you pleasure. You're living according to the flesh. And Paul is getting at, if you claim to be a Christian, but you continue like that, you must die. And there's a lot of urgency in this phrase. It's hard to bring across in English here. You must die, he says. If this is your lifestyle, literally, you are about to die. Or you could translate it, death is coming any moment. There's something about, it's right around the corner. And this isn't physical death. Christians die physical death. The idea here is you're about to go and meet the Lord and experience eternal death at any moment. Any moment. You live this way. You're spiritually dead. You'll go to see God. You'll go and be punished forever and ever. And it's not even an option to do anything else. He says this is how it is. You live according to flesh. You will absolutely go to eternal death. This is God's word. People don't like that kind of teaching. I just was in the bookstore the other day looking at books in the Christian section. I heard an older gentleman teaching some young college guys in there. It sounded like he had a little group going. 
I thought, that's nice. You know, he's talking about God. He's talking about hell. I wasn't catching every word. I went to leave the store and walked by them. And I heard him say, that's ridiculous. He didn't use that word. He used other more living according to the flesh words. He said, that's ridiculous that God would send anyone to hell. Here's a guy who had a group of young men and they were saying things like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's all clicking to me now. It's right here. You must die if you live according to the flesh. It's not something we can change in the Bible. This is God's word and we must believe it. And it must serve as a warning to Christians. First Timothy 5, 6, speaking of widows, she who lives in self-indulgence is dead even while she lives. Widows, in that case, who want to come and be supported by the church. He says, don't support a widow who's living in self-indulgence. This is not a Christian. This is somebody who's wanting money from the church to live on, saying they're a Christian, but they're not. Because this person is dead even while she lives. Living as a pattern of life, just like the world wants you to, just like the world loves, means that the Spirit is not in you. That's the obvious teaching here. God's word here says your actions speak truer than your words. When you're in the flesh, your actions speak truer. We know that's the case, don't we, with our children, right? Our actions speak louder than our words, but it's the case with everyone. Sometimes we think when we sin, people don't really see it. No, they notice. Even if you hide it, they notice a change. A change in you, a change in an attitude, a change in wanting to be around others, a change in coming to church. They notice. It is noticeable if you're living according to the flesh. Hebrews 12.10 says, Pursue peace with all men. And the sanctification, so two things to pursue, peace and sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. It's not possible to see God someday in a blessed way, in a way that you'll experience eternity, eternal life with Him, if you're not pursuing sanctification. It must be happening. It is just what Christians do. Yes, some of us need more teaching, more exhortation. That's why God puts so much, especially in the New Testament, for us on that. But without it, you won't see the Lord. You will not. John MacArthur says, A person whose life is characterized by the things of the flesh is not a true Christian and is spiritually dead, no matter what his religious affiliations or activities may be. It's a hard teaching, but a hard teaching builds up the Christian and often converts the sinner, the person who's running from God, the person who's not a Christian. Paul is saying, look, he's already warned them once when he wrote, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The professing believer doesn't belong to Christ. They're a false convert, a false Christian. And here he's doing it again. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. You must die. The only way out of that, the only way out of that logical flow of the sentence is if you convert to Christ, as if you come to Christ, as if you say, yes, I was a false convert. I realize that now. We've heard this many times. In fact, probably more than half the baptisms in this church are from people growing up thinking they were saved, then living a life of sin, not caring at all about the Lord, then actually being saved, regenerated, having the Spirit in them, and then wanting to finally get baptized because everything before that was just a bath in front of people, not true Christian baptism or sprinkling, maybe a shower in front of people before you even knew what was going on as a baby. Galatians 5.17, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit 
and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. They're fighting against one another. The spirit fights against the flesh. And the person who says, oh yeah, I have the spirit, but there's no fight. There's nothing going on in their life to fight. False convert is what Paul's getting at. All right, thirdly, and I'm moving through these quickly because there's going to be a lot of application from this third point. We're going to spend the rest of our time on this one. Number three, resisting and destroying your sin leads to eternal life. Living by the Spirit is a very clear contrast between living according to the flesh. It's a very clear contrast. And he says, those in the Spirit and the Spirit in them, they put to death their sins. You see the word but as a contrast? But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. You'll live. That's eternal life. You will live. Well, I want to do that. How do I do that? Romans 8 is all about assurance. How do I know that I have the Spirit? How do I know I'm saved? Because you're doing this. You're putting to death the practices or the deeds of the body. Maybe your translation says deeds. Same idea. These are actions that the body is committing in sin. Notice, though, he does not say deeds of the flesh. If you're just observing the changes here from sentence to sentence, he's been talking about the flesh, but he uses the word body. Because in the immediate context, the flesh is always used as someone who is not a believer, not a Christian, does not have the spirit. Now, there are other books where Paul uses the word flesh or fleshly to describe the sins that believers commit, like 1 Corinthians. But in this context right here in Romans, A person in the flesh is not saved. So he doesn't want to use that terminology. He changes it. He uses the word body. So instead of sarx, which is Greek for flesh, he uses soma, which is Greek for the body. Because that makes more sense. Believers still have a body in this life. And it's not a resurrected body. And it's a body that's used sometimes to commit sin. Not that he's not Also including thoughts in this list of sins that he's mentioned in Romans and other places. No, your thoughts happen inside your body, inside your mind. That's what he's getting at here. The practices that you do in this life that are sinful. The remaining sin that is still at times influencing you to sin even more. To go against God's commands. Yes, you're saved if you believe in Christ. If you trust in him with all your heart, if you turn from sin. Paul says there's no condemnation, but there's still a daily work. There's a work to kill remaining sin. This body now, this time that we're in now, in this life where we live, there's still sin. And it it gets brought out through the use of our body. Jesus even said, where does sin come from? It comes from the heart. It comes out of the heart and gets acted out in a person's life. This idea of practices of the body is mentioned in Colossians 3.9. Do not lie to one another since you put off, there's that idea, putting off the old man with his evil practices, with his evil acts, with his evil deeds. In Acts 19.18, talking about people being saved, also many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, And disclosing their practices. He's not talking about a medical practice. He's not talking about the things they do every day for work. The practices they were disclosing, they were confessing, is their sinful lifestyle. 
the sins of the flesh. And Paul says, the one who has the spirit is putting to death the practices of the body. Now, this is strong language, especially for us these days. Putting to death to cause total cessation of life, total cessation of an activity, to put to death, to kill, to execute. Now, I told you there's no imperatives in Romans 8. There's no commands in Romans 8 in the tense of an imperative. In Greek, you have imperative tenses. And these are all indicatives here in Romans 8. It's about who we are in Christ. It's about our position. It's not so much commands on what we should do, but this here and the way it's phrased with the if is an implied command, an implied imperative. He's saying, if you're doing this, and you better be doing this, is the idea. It's not as if it's a good idea. No, you better be doing this if you have the Spirit. So it's an implied imperative. That's how we should think about it. He's telling us to keep on putting to death the practices of the body, to keep on doing it. Colossians 3, 5, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Consider it dead. And and many argue that should be translated the same. Put it to death. Kill it. And the idea is killing sin in our life. And he's very urgent about how he describes this. Put it to death. It's urgent. It's intentional. It's violence in the sense that you're working on your own heart. You don't do violence to other people. But you go after that sin and you don't treat it like it's your good friend that you're just going to sit down and have a chat with. Please, sin, just leave me alone for a day. No, you kill it. That sounds violent, Pastor. Someone might get offended. Well, a lot of people do. And churches don't preach on sin. And they don't preach on putting sin to death. How can they if nobody understands what sin is? Now, they know they sin. Everybody does in their hearts. But we ought to know as much as we can about what God's word says about sin and how to put it to death. This language is strong, too strong for the modern man. But you should have heard the Puritans. All their sermons and writings were pretty much on this topic in one way or the other. Listen to how they described it. Thomas Brooks, sin is a viper that must be killed or it will kill you forever. Richard Baxter, sin is your murderer and the murderer of the whole world. Kill it before it kills you. He has a longer quote on that, how it's it's just like a murderer should be put to death when they murder. We ought to put sin to death. Now, Stephen Charnock takes it even further. He says that this killing, it must be quick. And an uninterrupted severity. The knife must still stick in the throat of sin. Till it fall down perfectly dead. Sin must be kept down. Though it will rage the more as a beast. But the pangs of death is more desperate. It's going to really try to fight you. When you start to put sin to death. So you make sure you go in there with precision. And you deal with your sins. It's in the present tense. Put to death. Present tense means it's continuous. It's ongoing. It's not something that happened when you were saved. It's not something you'll do in the future. No, he says, be doing this now. It's continuous. It's not just one time and we're done. It's our daily work. What's our daily work? Pick up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. What do you think he was talking about when he said, pick up your cross? Pick up your cross is not, my knee really hurts and I'm going to follow you, Christ, even if my knee hurts. That's not what he's talking about. Not back pain, not illnesses that we all go through. 
He says, kill the flesh. That's, that's what the cross did. It killed the body, killed the flesh. And when you pick up your cross, you're denying yourself, which is what he says in Luke. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. That's Christ's way of saying, put sin to death as you follow me, as you walk with me. That's what our obligation is, to live holy lives, pleasing to him. Now, John Owen, another Puritan, wrote a whole book on this topic. It's called The Mortification of Sin. And if you haven't read The Mortification of Sin, and you want to go deeper, deeper than we can go in the hour that we have, read that little book. It's a Puritan paperback, or you can find it in the works of John Owen. The Mortification of Sin. And he uses two illustrations, I think, that are helpful. Because as we think about the Christian life, sometimes we get beat down with this kind of preaching, rightly so, because we think, man, I sin a lot. So what's the difference between my old life and my new life? Well, Owen gives a couple of illustrations that help us. One is that of a forest and clearing out the underbrush. He says, before coming to Christ, you were just like a dense forest. And yeah, there were these beautiful trees, but you couldn't see them. All you see is this underbrush, these vines. There's no clearing in the forest. There's no light that ever gets through the trees. We want the light to get down and it won't get down. And it's just completely overgrown. Then you get converted. So sin is like this dense undergrowth. It fully dominates the landscape before you come to Christ. It dominates your intellect, emotions, your will. But then you come to Christ. You have faith in Christ. And suddenly there's clearings and the vines are gone. And some of the underbrush is gone. Much of it has been cleared out, but there's still a lot left. There's still a lot of work to be done to clear this out. Why didn't Christ do that before? Have you ever asked that question? Why didn't God just take all my sin away? Well, that's called going to heaven. You will have that someday. But he had a purpose for you to stay here. The thief on the cross got to go right away. You have a purpose. God has put you here to grow, to tell others about him, to help others grow, to teach others, to teach your children, your grandchildren, to be an example, to help start this church and grow this church and do all the things that God has told you to do in this life. Back to Owen, he says, now... There's some sunlight coming down because Christ has made some clearings. He's cut some vines out immediately. They're gone. There's some sunlight and we can see the ground. But the more light comes through, the more underbrush we can see that's left. And so our continual work is to go after that sin that remains, that underbrush that's still there, and focus for the rest of our Christian life on clearing that out. I think that's really helpful because, yes, much of it has been cleared immediately. Some sins went away. There should have been a change the day before you were saved and the day after you were saved, if you remember the specific day. If you don't, then month or year or decade. Somewhere there's a change that happened. And you noticed it in your life and others did too. And we ask people when they join the church, what was your life like before you came to Christ? What was your life like after you came to Christ? There needs to be a change at some point from your old self to your new self. Another illustration that Owen uses, this one's a bit shorter, Sometimes as Christians, we think, I have really put sin to death because I haven't done that sin in a while. It's been put to death. And Owen said, when our sin is quiet in us, that is when we should be the most concerned. And he uses the illustration of how water in the river, when it's deeper, is very still. Now, when it's fast making all this noise, it's very shallow. But you better be careful about that sin that is very deep, but is very quiet right now. You see, this is a never-ending war. It's continuous. You don't rest because you think you've defeated that sin. You don't say, 
Well, I used to struggle with that as a Christian, but I'll never struggle again. That's very prideful. We ought to say, I used to struggle with that sin. Praise the Lord, I haven't in a while. And I rely upon the grace of God and the Holy Spirit to not go back into that sin. That's the right way to think. God says he will lift up the humble someday. The humble person says, only by the grace of God. Or I would go right down my path back to my old self. It's a never-ending war. You don't rest because you've won a battle or two. That's when Satan's going to tempt you. That is when Satan is going to tempt you. When you think you've done really well. Man, I listened to that sermon. I took good notes. I went home. I applied it for the next month or two. My life has never been better. I'm doing well. Now I can relax a bit. Now I can go on spiritual vacation. Remember what Jesus told Peter? Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Remember what Peter then wrote in his letter? Satan is like a prowling lion. He's just prowling around, a roaring lion looking to give you a kiss. No, he wants to devour you. Sin looks like it's so sweet, but he wants to devour you, eat you up, spit you out. Now notice, last thing on this verse, that this mortification of sin is by the Holy Spirit. He's the means by which we put this sin to death. If you don't get that right, then you're going to come up with your own thoughts, join some cult or some other group that thinks they figured this out. Or maybe some bad teachings that have drifted into a church. We don't kill sin by our own power. We don't do it by whipping ourselves like they did in the Middle Ages in the Roman Catholic Church. We don't do it by asceticism. I'll just go live in a cave and I'll never be around anyone else. I'll live the monkish life. And that will fix my sin because it's other people who make me sin. Didn't work in the Middle Ages. It doesn't work today. Because sin comes from where? Within. Even that bit of remaining sin that's still there that you're working on is from within that you're working on it. We don't try and kill sin by asceticism or we don't try and kill sin by experience. Maybe if I just go to the new church down the highway and it's so big and wonderful and they're going to put the fog machine on and they're going to play this wonderful music and I'm going to feel so good that I won't sin after a week or so because it's such a good experience. Or maybe a personal experience. You know, you're praying and maybe it was a real experience. You felt the presence of the Lord in your life because you were convicted of your sin. Good, but you can't just look back to that experience as somehow fixing this problem. This is an ongoing war and we can't solve it by asceticism or experience or sudden spiritual crisis. The Wesleyans, some charismatics teach this, that you need a sudden spiritual crisis. Or the Baptists, the recommitment to Christ. Recommitment to Christ a hundred times. That's an experience in another way. You're just looking back to some experience. No, you do it by putting to death the practices, the sins of the body, by the Spirit's power. The Spirit is the one who does it. It's the Spirit's power. You do it too, but the Spirit does it in you. It's not our own power, in other words. As long as you realize it's the Spirit's power, when we talk about these application points in a minute, you'll be much better off than falling into wrong ideas and teaching on that. We must rely on and trust in the Spirit of God to provide us that power. If it's by the Spirit, we are told to be about this business of killing sin. But it can't be by our own power. I love what John MacArthur says. He says, controlling flesh by the flesh is never going to work. It didn't work before you're saved. It's not going to work after you're saved. It has to be by the Spirit's power. 
The Spirit is the one who does it, otherwise it would not be done. The Spirit does it in such a way, though, that it is still our work. It is still our work. Don't think, I'm just going to sit back on the couch and let the Spirit work in me. A lot of people think that. That's not how it works. You've got to do something. Look at Philippians 2.12. This is the best verse that describes both concepts here. Your personal responsibility and God's sovereignty. Philippians 2.12. A little bit into the verse here. We'll pick up. Work out your salvation. Work it out. Not work for it. Prepositions are important. Not work for, but work out. You have something put in you. Now work it out. Work it out in your life with fear and trembling. Be careful what you do. Have some fear of God in your life. As a Christian, you must have a fear of God. Trembling. But it's God, it says. It's God who is at work in you. Work out your salvation. Go and do this. That's a command. For it is God who is at work in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Ultimately, it's him helping you. Yes. Doing it. Yes. We can't claim it for ourselves. We can't boast is the point. We can't say, you know, I'm so godly because I worked hard at it. You just have to work hard. No, God worked in us. And yes, we put hard work into it, but God is doing it in us. So who's doing it? You or God? Both. Both God and you are killing your sin, believer. And sometimes we stumble. And God is right there as we confess our sins, as we come to him and ask for his help once again. He does not forsake us. He does not leave us if we're truly his. So the order is God is doing something in you, but you are called to work it out. And look what Paul says here. If you are killing your remaining sin, then the verse, that's back in verse Romans 8, 13. The verse says, you will live. You will live. You will have eternal life. This means the person who's living by the Spirit and killing their sin, that person will inherit eternal life. Not because they earned it by their good works. No, because they were justified and now they showed that throughout their whole life. It's obvious this person can have assurance because they have been putting their sin to death. That's the work of sanctification. You can have eternal life. If you don't work at that, you just prove that you don't have eternal life because you're not saved. Leon Morris, the commentator, says, There is a living that is death, and there is a putting to death that is life. And we want to be on the side that is putting to death because that ends in eternal life. So how do we do it? That's the question Paul does not answer directly here. But I can't leave you today with two hours left that I could go for on this topic How do we put sin to death by the Holy Spirit's power? How do we do it? Well, I've got eight, I believe. Eight. And what I did is just try to stay within Romans. I tried to stay within the book of Romans because he doesn't say it here. So I'm assuming he says it somewhere else in the book. Now we can go all over scripture and that's fine. I just want to stay in Romans today and give you eight ways to put the Holy Spirit's power to work in your life so you can put sin to death. Number one, increase your faith, love, and affections for Christ. Increase your love for Christ. And this is all that he said leading up to this. He's been telling us about what Jesus did for us. He's been telling us about how Christ died for us. 
How he propitiated the wrath of God for us. How he atoned for our sins. How we're justified. How Abraham was justified. How we aren't saved by the law. We're not saved by good works. How Christ is the second and better Adam. And how the law could never save. But Christ came and he fulfilled the law. And fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law for us. We need to think more of Christ. That's where we start. That's where Paul started. Yeah, he told us about our sin and why we need Christ. But he spent all these chapters talking about Christ and what he's done for us. Now he starts to say, put sin to death. And he'll come back to that in the rest of the book. It was Robert Murray Machane who said, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Sometimes we can become overly introspective about our sin. Now, it's not common today because sin is blown off so much and the world approves of that. Don't worry about your sin. Don't think about your sin. Hide your sin. Oh, here's a new way we've invented so you can hide your sin. But some people can be too introspective and focus too much on their sin and forget to look up at Christ. And so it's a good practice. Ten looks at Christ for every look at yourself. Let's look at John 15, 5. Why should we increase our faith, our love and affections for Christ? How is that going to help us? Well, in John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. That's what we want to do. That's sanctification, bearing fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't even do this process without Christ. If you don't have Christ, you can't do it. You can fight the sin all day long. You're not really even able to fight it without Christ. He says you can do nothing. Now go to Hebrews. Another passage. of These are things we ought to think about, remind ourselves on. It should increase our faith, our love for Christ. Yes, you had saving faith when you were saved. You had a love for Christ at that point. You had affections for him, but you should grow them. Just like in a marriage, husband and wife should be growing their affections towards one another. We should be growing our love for Christ. It's not stagnant. It's not in a dry season because we're working on it. We're putting effort into it. So we're going to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he, that's Christ, he had to be made like his brothers in all things. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. He's our high priest. We can go to him when we sin. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he's our high priest, but he's also the ultimate sacrifice. And then look at the next verse. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to help those who are tempted. We've got to go to Christ. The closer we have a connection with him, the easier this is going to be for us. And we're fighting and killing sin by the Holy Spirit's power. When we think of Christ, when we study Christ, his person and his work. Christology. Just get some books on Christology. Read them. Pray through them. Look up the verses. Listen to sermons on that. Go to classes that we teach on that. Increase your faith, love, and affections. And you can't do that unless you're learning something about that person. If I told my wife when I married her, you know, I love you now, and that's it. It's not going to grow. And I'm not going to learn anything about you in the next 25 years of our marriage. She would not like that. Don't do that to God. I got the check mark, God. I'm going to be seeing you in heaven someday. 
You better be putting sin to death. And one of the ways you do that is to have a close relationship with Christ. You do that through increasing your love and affections for him. Now, the hyper-grace movement says, well, that's all you need. Just stop right there. They have one point right there. You sin, you look back to the cross, you go on, you feel better. That's important. That's where we're starting. But you actually have to do something. Remember, putting sin to death by the Spirit's power, not the Spirit doing it all for you. So the rest of these will deal with what you should be doing through the Spirit's power. It's vital to look back to the cross. It's vital to think of Christ. But if that was all there was, then what is Paul doing here? Saying this, that we should put sin to death. Secondly, pray for help in putting sins to death. Romans 8, 26. We'll get to this in a few weeks. Pray for help. It's in the Spirit's power. So pray that God would help you. 8, 26. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. He helps us. Specifically in prayer even. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings. Too deep for words. Groanings too deep. We don't even really know how to pray for ourselves the right way. We should still pray. We should still do our best. But you know the good news is the Spirit is in us and He intercedes for us on behalf of us to God. God answers prayers that are in line with His will and that God wants the sanctification of the believer is crystal clear in the Bible. Sometimes people say, what's God's will for my life? Should I marry this person? Should I go to this school? Should I take this job? I just wish God would send a message on what He wants me to do with my life. Well, here it is, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God. Very clear. Your sanctification. Your sanctification. Because if you're growing in Christ's likeness and you understand what the Bible says about the Christian life, then you'll be able to make wise decisions on marriage, which the Bible talks about, on places of work, which the Bible helps with, the wisdom that is taught there, and so on. But the Main focus is your sanctification. How often do we pray to God that we could put sin to death? Sometimes we say, just remove it from us. But God says, you put it to death. I've given you the power. I've given you the resources. I've given you the tools. Do it because through that process, you're growing and growing and growing closer to God. So pray that he would strengthen us for that fight. How often do we ask that all of our sins happen less and less every day? We're too focused sometimes on the things we want or our health problems or somebody else's health problems, which are good to pray for. But a huge focus in the New Testament is killing your sin and putting it to death. That's why Jesus talked about plucking an eye out, cutting off a hand. This is serious stuff. Number three, renew your mind with godly things. Romans 12, 2, renew your mind with godly things. It starts in the mind. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. Don't go into the world and just imbibe from the world. No wonder you're having a hard time with your sin. You're drinking in the world's sin into your brain, into your eyes, into your ears. And then you're wondering why the struggle is so hard. Or maybe you have friends that are just unbelievers with all this sin and they want you to sin and you wonder why it's so hard. Stop putting junk into your mind. Immorality, filth, cuss words. Entertainment is huge with giving you all of this sin. 
I'm just watching it for educational purposes. That's why I enjoy those things. It's just entertainment. I mean, come on, Pastor. Shouldn't we have a little time to relax and be entertained? We should relax. But entertainment has a lot of sin in it, so you better be careful. MacArthur says we should not be entertained by the sins for which Christ died. We should not be enjoying all this filth when Christ died for those sins and we're finding enjoyment. Yes, entertainment can be fine, but be careful what you put in. Garbage in, garbage out. Instead, focus on the things above. Read your Bible and pray more. Practice what you're learning from the Bible and from sermons. Get more involved in your church. Start a Bible study with someone else. Parents, lead your children in family worship. Make the normal pattern of your life one that is involved in godly things. Every once in a while, you take a break, you rest, you watch a good wholesome movie or a children's movie with your kids, if that's the case. But don't just sit there and imbibe all this junk from the world that is flowing fast to our homes through the internet. Number four, put on the armor of God. Put on the armor of God. Romans 13, 12. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. The day that Christ is coming back. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. There's those practices, deeds again. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Put on the armor. Put on the armor God has given you. He's given you an armor of light. In Ephesians 6, it's called the armor of God. He lists all the different things. And I think there of the belt of truth, which is the truth of God's word, the teaching of God's word. Put that belt on. Know God's word. You want to have success in this fight? Know God's word. The whole of it. The theological implications of it. Study theology. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for elders to study theology. It's not just for people with doctorates. It is for every Christian. Study it. Know it. That's the belt of truth. The sword of the Spirit. How did Jesus use the sword of the Spirit when Satan came to tempt him? He just quoted verses right at Satan. The sword of the Spirit. No specific verses that address your sin and cite those when you're tempted. You can say it out loud. Probably not best in the church service, but you can say it out loud to yourself to remind yourself. Know it in your mind. Remember it. Memorize it. The Bible is our primary tool. That's the primary tool the Holy Spirit has given us. The Spirit is in us, and He inspired every word of this Bible to be written. We're not going to use His primary tool by memorizing specific verses to use or knowing the whole of Scripture. That's the primary way that He works. Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. That's what we're talking about, sanctification. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. Okay, I want to be sanctified by the truth, Jesus. And he says, your word. He's talking to God in his prayer here. Your word is truth. Number five, don't make provision for sin. Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the idea of putting on the Lord. That's the vivification and here's mortification. And make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Don't feed it. Don't make space for it in your life. Don't make room for it through your internet provider. Get some help there. Get counseling. Get help so that you're not providing more and more space and food and time and money for your sin. Stop feeding it. Just starve it out. That's one way to kill it. Just starve it out. 
You know, young people, single people, sometimes they just have too much time to sit around and do nothing. And it's no wonder they end up on websites they shouldn't be on. They just sit around and don't do anything. Be active. Be active in your church. Be active with Christians. Be active at work. Don't make time for the flesh. Number six, don't be legalistic. A whole chapter in Romans on this. 14.4, let's pick up there. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person judges one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Look, Christians have different views on really the opinion level. It's not even a doctrinal level. It's just an opinion and it's been raised to the level of doctrine. Again, he picks this up in verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you view your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That's what you should be focused on. Your walk with Christ. Because you're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. As a believer, that's a seat where we get rewards. But quit focusing so much on what other people aren't doing or are doing. Focus on your Christian walk. Verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather judge this, not to put a stumbling block or offense before a brother. Don't be legalistic. What is the kind of legalism he's talking about here? It's not the kind where you earn your salvation through works. It's the kind of man-made rules that Christians come up with that everybody has to obey. I like chocolate ice cream, so you all have to like chocolate ice cream. Or you're in sin. Or coffee. You know, I mentioned when I preached a series on legalism that a church split over coffee flavors and coffee machines. It happens. And if you've been in some churches, you would understand why. If you've been in a few that are very legalistic. When believers are told they must follow a man-made rule rather than God's rules or alongside God's rules. When you add to God's word. That's legalism. And what that does is it takes our focus off of us. And we start focusing on the other people and how they ought to obey our expectations and our rules. And how they should do what we say. Not what the Bible says, but we have found the best thing since sliced bread. The real key, the real secret to sanctification. We have found it. Come and study with us and we will teach you exactly how to do it. Now we go to God's word. The legalist wants to live by a checklist to grow in their sanctification. They'll often just say, Pastor, just tell me the 10 things I need to do. And I will check those boxes like a pro. I will hit them all. Tell me my expectations. Tell me what I need to do. I will do it. But legalism is no way to kill sin. Legalism is the work of the flesh. The flesh has no power to control the flesh. While the legalist thinks he's becoming more godly and killing sin, all he's doing is putting himself back under the yoke of bondage, Paul says in Galatians. So don't be a legalist. Number seven, be accountable to others in Christ. Romans 15, 1 and 2. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his building up. That can only happen if you're in a body and you're accountable to others and you're helping others and you know about their needs and you're seeking to build them up for good and not just to please yourself. Verse 7, therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Accountability's really been skewed, I think, in the modern church. It's all about just meeting kind of with a small group and sort of talking about your sins for an hour. No, accountability just happens in the normal life of the church. I mean, sometimes you need more accountable, one-on-one discipleship, biblical counseling. But it happens in the life of the church. Church discipline is accountability. Membership is accountability. 
being together every week that you possibly can be here is accountability. Someone sees you. Someone notices you. You know, the first sign that we see as elders of a serious sin in someone's life is withdrawal. I'm just going to withdraw because the more I'm around people, the more they might see my sin. And I love my sin, so I'm going to withdraw. And we've seen that happen time and time again. I think every church discipline case we've had started with a withdrawal from the body. First, it's a few little things, and then not even here on Sunday morning. So be accountable to others in Christ. We're here to worship the Lord together and to serve one another together, to build up one another together. If you ask, what does the list these sins have in common? Envy, strife, selfish ambition, controlling others, dissensions, factions, a critical spirit, anger, bitterness, resentment, and jealousness. What do they all have in common? They're all practices of the body that come from focusing on other people instead of ourselves. We're looking at the sawdust in everybody else's eyes. And we're saying, I want what they want. They don't deserve it. They're sinners too. I want my preferences met. I want to control everything. I don't like what someone else has. I should have that. I'm offended. Someone didn't do what I wanted them to do in that situation. That's a distraction from your sanctification. It's a distraction from the work of the church if it happens in the church. But just on a friendship level, that's a distraction from your sanctification. There's a log, a sequoia tree in our eyes that we need to be sawing on. And we're walking around picking out sawdust in other people's eyes. Number eight, last one, keep watch. This is how Paul closes the letter. Last command, I believe. If not, it's near the last. Romans 16, 17. Now I urge you, brothers, to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and stumbling contrary to the teaching which you learn and turn away from them. So while we're sawing on our log in our eye, we do have to watch for some folks. We have to watch for people who are disrupting the church. How do they do it? What does he say? They cause dissensions. And they put stumbling blocks that are contrary to teaching. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own stomach. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. We've got to watch out for false teaching. Watch out for factious people. Watch out for people who cause dissensions, who love to stir up trouble. How does that help us in godliness? Again, because we're not going to get wrapped up into that, which is a distraction from the real work we're supposed to be doing. The work of growing in holiness. And so you keep an eye on that. He's telling the whole church to do that. Keep an eye on that because that builds up the body. Keep watch. Be on the alert, as Peter said, for Satan who's prowling around like a lion ready to devour us. Be on the lookout. You're not You're not picking every little speck out. You're saying, here comes a false teacher. Here comes a false believer who's stirring up, who's trying to distract the work of God in the church. So those are eight ways. I hope they help you. I saw those in Romans there. Eight ways that you can be putting sin to death by the Spirit's power. So the question to conclude here is, are you putting your sin to death? Are you doing it? John Owen in his book says, Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So let's ask the Lord's help in doing that. Lord, help us to kill sin in our life. Help us to fight these temptations. And when they do crop up and grow into sins, 
Help us to kill it, to put it to death, to execute it, Lord, and continue to do that. Not just the one main sin or a few sins that really bother us, but all of our sins. Let us be experts at this process by the Spirit's power and help us to remember it is you working in us. It is your Spirit who does this, who gives us the power and remind us every day to be about it. We pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen.